This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey, folks, just a quick announcement. We're in the midst of a very important fundraising drive to come up with all of our production costs for 2016. If you like Kick-Ass Politics and you value what I'm doing here, then I hope you'll go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics and donate what you can. It's vital that we fund our production budget for the coming year so I can focus my energies on the content side of Kick-Ass Politics and keep producing new episodes for you every week. So be a part of what I'm creating here. Just go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics or hit the donate button on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com. Thanks in advance, folks, and now enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. Folks, you've probably heard that famous list of supposedly eerie similarities between Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. You know the one. Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy, and Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln, yada, yada, yada. Well, apparently, there's a similar list between Nixon and Clinton. Hear me out, folks. Nixon, his biggest fear, the Cold War. Clinton, his biggest fear, a cold sore. Nixon worried about carpet bombs, while Clinton worried about carpet burns. Nixon, Watergate. Clinton, Waterbed. Nixon, known for the slogan, Nixon's the one. Clinton, known for women pointing at him and saying, he's the one. But wait, wait, I got another one for you. There's this big Democrat political guy, high up, worked for Bill and Hillary's campaigns and everything. And one day, he says Richard Nixon was a better president than Bill. In fact, he says Nixon was the most accomplished president and liberal president of the past hundred years. Wait, hang on, just a minute. That's not a joke. That's my guest today. And he has a whole bunch to reveal about the real Nixon-Clinton relationship and more in his new book, The Nixon Effect, How Richard Nixon's Presidency Fundamentally Changed American Politics. He's Democrat strategist, pollster, and political commentator Doug Schoen. This is the guy who pioneered overnight polling. And he's been one of the most influential Democrat campaign consultants for over 30 years, working on the campaigns of Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Michael Bloomberg, Evan Bayh, Tony Blair, Silvio Berlusconi, and three, count them three, Israeli prime ministers. But you probably recognize Doug as a political analyst for Fox News. He's also a frequent contributor to The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Newsmax. He's written 11 books, including his newest book, The Nixon Effect, and today, Doug Schoen will make the case that Richard Nixon was one of the most accomplished presidents in history and perhaps the most liberal president in modern times. He'll also talk about the profound effect that Nixon has had on politics of the past 40 years, including driving both parties to their extremes and inadvertently giving birth to the modern conservative movement. Coming up with today's guest, Doug Schoen, in just a moment.
Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. My guest today is Doug Schoen. He's a Democrat pollster and strategist who's worked on the campaigns of everyone from Bill and Hillary Clinton to Michael Bloomberg, Evan Bayh, and the late Ed Koch. He's a political analyst for Fox News and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Newsmax. He has a very interesting new book called The Nixon Effect, How Richard Nixon's Presidency Fundamentally Changed American Politics. Doug, thanks for sitting down with me. My pleasure. This book is in many ways over 40 years in the making. When you were at Harvard, an old professor of yours, and later a client of yours, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, gave you an assignment. How did that lead to this book? Well, 43 years ago, uh, he was Professor Moynihan at the time, became Senator Moynihan after being Ambassador Moynihan, said, you Harvard undergraduates, you don't understand the importance and the role that President Nixon uh, has played in terms of shaping domestic and indeed foreign policy. And he said, you would do well to study it, analyze it, and understand it. And 43 years later, I took him up on the assignment, and the Nixon effect is the result of that effort. Well, Nixon is such a polarizing figure today, and he's often used as kind of the worst example of conservatism gone wrong. But he was actually a centrist, and you argue that he was probably the most liberal president of at least the last half century, if not the past hundred years. Correct. You have the Clean Air Act. You have uh, the EPA. You have uh, affirmative action. You have he desegregated uh, the vast majority of segregated schools in the South from I think 10% were desegregated to 70% when he left uh, office. He proposed national health insurance of the kind that President Obama himself passed uh, as Obamacare. He supported a guaranteed annual income with his family assistance plan. He was willing to adopt Keynesian economic policies when they suited his administration. So on balance, we have a president who was extremely, I think, progressive. And for Democrats today, much of his agenda uh, would be very, very congenial with uh, mainstream Democratic thinking. In the book, you say that Nixon drove both parties to their extremes. And we've seen that over the past 40 years. In the case of the GOP, his sort of inadvertent legacy was to create the conservative movement as a reaction against his presidency. Correct. But how did he perhaps more deliberately manage to drive Democrats to the far left and sort of box them in? Two ways. First, by adopting the liberal social uh, welfare policies that we just discussed that forced the Democrats to move further left. On foreign policy, because he had a plan to uh, Vietnamize the war, which Democrats found woefully inadequate, the Democrats became the party effectively of peace and the legacy of Vietnam, with a couple of small exceptions like the first Gulf War, have driven Democrats to oppose virtually all foreign incursions since then and to be perceived by uh, the American people as being weaker on foreign affairs and foreign policy than the Republicans. So you have a Democratic Party that on ideological grounds moved left, but also given Watergate the class of senators and congressmen that were elected 
were so antagonistic to Nixon and the Republicans that the result of his policies were more polarization. Um, and speaking of that polarization, you, you definitely talk about the use of wedge issues to polarize voters as one of, the, one of his political innovations. But you say Nixon used polarization to grow his coalition. He did. A lot of people would say that sounds counterintuitive. So explain how that works for Nixon. Well, let me start with how he grew the coalition. He had what he called the, came to call the silent majority. And he was able to appeal to what had been the solidly democratic South with a set of politics and policies that were uh, oriented towards being tough on crime, tough on demonstrations, uh, those who were anti-systemic. That was how he grew the coalition in the face of the challenge from George Wallace in the 1968 uh, election. The other part of your question, again, if you could repeat it. Oh, I was saying, how does that, a lot of people would think that this idea of growing a coalition by polarizing the electorate, it would be counterintuitive. So how does that work for Nixon? Well, yeah. How, so, how, how, do, how does one polarize but, 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 yet but Yes, exactly. Well, let me speak directly to that. He spoke when there were demonstrations of the broad mass of the American people who didn't demonstrate, who went to work, who paid their bills, paid their mortgage. And candidly, uh, what he did was do an us-them campaign where he put, say, 70 80% of the American people against the small mass of anti-war protesters relative to the larger population. Yeah, and earlier you mentioned his Southern strategy, which he kind of had two major gifts, I guess, uh, or moments of political genius that were the, the invention of the Southern strategy and the invention of the silent majority. You know, first the Southern strategy. For a long time, that's been portrayed by the left as an example of racism in the conservative movement. But you say that it's more complex than it, that. It's much more complex. In fact, Nixon's record, as I suggested in terms of your earlier question, supporting affirmative action, the Philadelphia plan to provide uh, goals and quotas for minorities in federal hiring, desegregation, uh, and appointed more African-Americans to high-level government jobs than any president, I think, in the 20th century. All of that is a very progressive record on race and race-related issues. That being said, the whole strategy was a divide uh, those that protested uh, uh, from those who were you know, much more likely to buy into uh, pro-systemic arguments that was perceived, I think, wrongly as a racist strategy. It certainly is the case that many on the left perceive that as having a racial basis. But Nixon uh, was one of the supporters of the 1957 Civil Rights Bill. He uh, competed successfully with John F. Kennedy for the African-American vote in 1960 until Kennedy called Martin Luther King in jail and Nixon for his own reasons, did not. So I, I guess I would say it's a much more complicated and nuanced issue than just Nixon made racial or racist appeals. Yeah, and you know, in this idea of polarizing to grow the party or to grow your coalition, you talk about what you referenced earlier, the silent majority, um, which was kind of this disaffected block of white working class voters 
And in the book, you say that that, you know, back then, it was good for growing a majority because they were the majority. Is that strategy starting to kind of backfire on Republicans? Well, I, I, think, it, I think it is for a couple of reasons. First, the, the approach has gotten more extreme as time has gone on. And we've seen that in the primaries. The other thing is with the opposition to any sort of immigration reform, the Republican Party is increasingly alienating itself from Hispanics. The third point is minorities are a much bigger percentage of the electorate than they were circa 1968. I think around 68, blacks and Hispanics were 11, 12% together of the electorate. They're now 22, 23, 24%. Yeah, and is it, a, it would seem to me that it might be a mistake for the Trump coalition, if, if that's a thing, to be doubling down on the strategy at this point in the game. Well, I mean, if you just look at the numbers. Yeah, it's a good strategy for the primary so far. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a winning strategy for a general election because there are not enough aging white males for suburban. Yeah, and so much of this, you know, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking Trump, Trump. <laughs> so I'm looking no, at so many let, of these strategies me, and these playbooks. Let, and me, I, let I me tell a story if, I, kept popping in if my I can about Trump and Nixon. Yeah. In 1987, when Trump was first flirting with the presidential race, uh, Richard Nixon took it upon himself to write Trump a letter, said, Dear Donald, uh, Pat was watching Donahue the other night, and as the political <laughs> expert in the family, she says you'll be a winner whenever you run for office, best Richard Nixon. <laughs> now, that, now, was there a backhanded compliment in there? I, I'm still trying to figure that out. It, it's 50% praise and 50 percent perhaps a little sarcasm but i am sure if richard nixon were with us today he would say with some justification that he had predicted the rise of donald trump <laughs> and well is that what we're seeing is this the zenith of conservative populism that we're seeing in the trump candidacy I, I think it is i think you know when i spoke as i mentioned at the nixon library yesterday and a couple of people got up and said i'm for trump but just because i'm against the rest of them and i think we're seeing a lot of that in the country yeah. Well, we'll take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk more with Doug Schoen about his new book, The Nixon Effect. Folks, do you like to read, but you don't have the time? Give audiobooks a try. All those times you spend listening to this podcast, you can also be listening to a great book. You can play it on your drive to work, on a run, in the bathtub, while cooking, or just sitting and enjoying one of those rare stolen moments. And right now, you can download any audiobook you want for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free download of any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with pollster and strategist Doug Schoen about his new book, The Nixon Effect. You talk at length about Richard Nixon's post-presidency in the book, and you say he didn't expect to be forgiven, but he wanted to be respected. 
What was Nixon's path to redemption like? His path was, was basically writing articles and books. He was largely shunned by the political elite. I think the first time and he went to the White House was in 79, after having left five years before, when the Chinese government at a state dinner asked that he be included, right. not anyone on the American side. But until really Bill Clinton uh, was elected and invited Nixon to come in the front door of the White House, was Nixon basically pretty much shunned. I think Reagan may have invited him once, but strictly confidentially, not on the public schedule. And so it really was an extraordinary redemption to go from leaving the White House in disgrace, getting mortally ill and recovering, and having led a life of really being a transcendent figure in American life up to his passing in 1994. Yeah, and one thing that I found interesting about kind of his wilderness years there, um, he, he was pretty consistent in giving foreign policy advice to the Reagan administration. He was actually the one who advocated early on negotiating with the Russians, but then uh, toward the end there, he seemed to kind of change Correct. his tune. Nixon told Reagan after the 1980 election, you've got to be flexible. You can't just be intransigent. We have to work with the Russians. When Reagan, in the, I think the second term, decided he wanted to eliminate all nuclear weapons, and he figured he and Gorbachev could go take a walk and accomplish that, Reagan was one of those who was saying, wait a minute, let's not be naive. Let's not trust the Russians. And let's not do anything where we disarm in a way that could put the nation at risk. Yeah, and you know the Reagan administration was just one of many that did appreciate to some to a certain degree his advice, but kept him at arm's length. And you just mentioned uh, earlier that he had a, a surprising relationship with Clinton, and I was surprised to learn about that in the book. That that was probably you say Nixon's closest relationship mm -hmm. with one of his predecessors in the White House. Um, and setting aside impeachment, you say that Bill Clinton is probably Nixon's truest political heir. Both of them were professional politicians par excellence. Um, both of them lost gubernatorial elections. Both of them were outsiders in society. Um, both of them uh, governed in a way that achieved great success and had great, great failings. And I think there was a personal identification between Nixon and um, Clinton that was arguably unique. And I think Bill Clinton said after his first meeting in 93, if it was, with Nixon, that he got the best advice from Nixon about dealing with the Russians as he got from anybody. And what did you talk about how Bill Clinton borrowed quite a bit from his playbook? What did he learn from Nixon? Well, I was part of the effort. And Richard Nixon. Right. Nixon you, you were in the Clinton administration. I, I, I was. I was yeah. one of the pollsters and strategists. Uh, Richard Nixon, as we've discussed, was able to move to the center, build a 49-state coalition through uh, both polarizing and bringing people together. And we did something similar where we triangulated. Nixon moved to the left. Bill Clinton moved to the right. We did welfare reform, the crime bill, the balanced budget, all traditionally Republican initiatives, all done to try to co-opt the center-right, the Ross Perot vote. Uh, so 
So he really, he, Nixon kind of triangulated before there was such a thing as triangulation. That, that is absolutely right. Well, you also worked for Hillary's campaign last time around. I, I did not work for oh, her campaign oh, last oh, time. I, did. I did work for her Senate campaign oh, okay. in 2000. Okay. So it's fair to say I've worked for her, but not in 2008. Okay. Do you think that she's borrowing from Nixon as well? I think she's trying to stay as far away from any association with someone like President Nixon as possible. I don't think Richard, right now, yeah. <laughs> Richard Nixon would be too sympathetic to somebody who seeks to emulate the policies of a socialist like Bernie Sanders. I think Richard Nixon would have been in the 96 campaign very, very proud of what we did for Bill Clinton. And I must tell you, Ben, one of my greatest and enduring personal regrets, when I was working for President Clinton, I did not avail myself of the opportunity to go meet uh, President Nixon. And that is one of my profoundest regrets about my life. You know, I wonder, do you think that there is anything that she might be able to borrow in terms of uh, damage control and uh, scandal control? <laughs> I don't know. You know, with the... Not that that worked for Nixon. Well, <laughs> it didn't It didn't work for Nixon. But, you know, we have a very serious probe of Secretary Clinton going on now, and it's hard to say, hey, what will happen? But just looking at the public record, there's every reason to believe that the Justice Department and the FBI are looking very, very seriously at the email scandal. Well, that brings up another point that you talk about later in the book. I can't think of a president since Nixon who hasn't at one time or another been mentioned in the same breath as the word impeachment. Do we throw around the word impeachment a little too casually in the post-Watergate era? I think we do. I think it was a mistake to impeach Bill Clinton. I think those who've spoken as some have of impeaching President Obama have been wrong and arguably reckless. And I think impeachment is an extreme remedy for those who commit serious offenses, which arguably President Nixon did. But that being said, I don't think it is a way of expressing one's political opposition as frequently now happens. Well, you know, let's talk about the primary right now. Nixon was a centrist. He created the conservative coalition. Would Nixon ever be able to survive in this GOP primary? You know, I would never have thought he would have been able to be nominated in 1968, <laughs> but he was. I think the simple answer to your question is he wouldn't be able to get nominated, but I think the Richard Nixon that would run for office in 2016 would be a very different Richard Nixon than ran in 1960, 68, or 72. Huh. So you think that he was flexible enough that he would be able to adjust for the times? He was an anti-communist par excellence uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. He um, made really, really significant arms control agreements with the Russians when he was president and is responsible for detente. If nothing else, Richard Nixon has proven that he can change with the times and be flexible. Well, to that extent, toward the end of the book, you try to imagine what advice Nixon would give the candidates in 2016. Sure. If you will, maybe put on your Nixon hat again and with or without your best Nixon impression, give us the Nixon, give us Nixon the strategist's yeah. best advice to the candidates on the right and the left. Sure. Well, first I think he would say to Trump, you've got a winning strategy potentially for the primary, but you've got to tone it down. 
I think he would suggest that all the while, probably being pretty proud that Trump has taken on the established interests, and particularly the media. I think Nixon would like that. I think he would also give similar advice to Cruz. Uh, I think he would have great respect for Cruz's intellect, but also find his policies too extreme. I think he'd probably like Rubio a lot, but feel it wasn't his time. I think he would be very, very um, empathetic to Jeb Bush, largely because of his sympathies to his father who served him as ambassador to China, head of the RNC, head of the CIA. I think he'd be very sympathetic. He'd probably conclude, Jeb, it's not your time. I also believe on the Democratic side, because of his affection for Bill Clinton, he would try to give Hillary advice, but I think he would see that the Democratic Party has gone so far left, it would be almost impossible for Hillary to try to compete as she has by being Bernie Light. Yeah, and you mentioned Rubio. I wonder if he would relate to him as someone who was a very young senator and young vice president who sometimes probably had trouble getting taken seriously. I'm I'm sure he would. And also as a Cuban-American who escaped communism, I think he'd have great sympathies for Senator Rubio. So I think Nixon would have empathetic feelings for all candidates. And I think secretly he would probably root for Trump. And this is just speculation. Just because he would admire a man against the system, all the while he'd probably uh, recoil among some of the things Trump's done. But I think in his heart of hearts, he would say something like, I don't know if um, using a little off-color language is podcast. I think he would sort of say to himself, give it to me. <laughs> yeah. Meaning mostly the media, the establishment, and the like. But that being said, I think even though Hillary was on the impeachment committee, I think because of Bill Clinton, he would probably want to help Hillary beat an avowed democratic socialist. Yeah, and it is interesting because you know there is there are so many similarities to him and Trump taking on the you know railing against the media, the hatred for the elites, and so forth. Exactly, exactly. So you know, uh, it would be fascinating though. Well, I do want to ask you one non-Nixon question before we run out of time. Please. You're one of the most respected pollsters in the country, so I have to ask, what's going on with with polling? Over the past four four years, we've seen a string of these misses, you know, the 2012 election, British election, Israeli election. Sure. What's going on? Why are polls missing the mark? Very good question. First, it's tougher and tougher to reach people on the phone. We don't know the real correct mix between landlines and cell phones, and it's tougher to reach people on cell phones, and most people like me use it as their primary means of communication. Second, there are lower response rates. Third, I think there may be differential response rates where liberals are more likely to respond than our conservatives uh, to um, uh, polls. And And fourth, the electorate changes so rapidly. Unless you poll up until the last minute, like the day before an election, you can you can miss it. You can get it wrong. Wow. So what are the fixes then for that? You know, or are there? The dirty little secret is we don't know <laughs> what the fixes are. Some are doing online polling, but that misses one segment of the electorate. Right. Um, others are doing a combination of online and telephone. But mm. we just don't know. I think the best answer for us... Who are in the analytical community 
is to do what Real Clear Politics does and to average the polls and hopefully okay. get a approximation. But if you said to me now, design a ideal sampling method that you have the greatest degree of confidence in, I can't sit here today and say, I know the answer. Yeah, because it would have to be some kind of perfect cocktail that combines all of those things. Right, and we don't have it and yet. you don't know what the formulation we is We don't. Yet. We don't. Um, well, fantastic. <laughs> that gives me lots of confidence <laughs> going into 2016. I hope we get it fixed before November. Well, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. If yeah. there are a range of polls and you are yeah. uncertain about what's going on, which probably could happen, please... Call me in New York. I'm not going to be here all that much, but call me in New York. I'd be happy to do a podcast over the phone where Fantastic. I dissect the polls for your listeners. I will take you up on that. Now, are there any polls we want to avoid? You know, it's hard for me to say. I would say those polls with names you don't recognize, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. you look at what's been done and there's a sparse amount of demographic information and the like, I, and I don't want to single one poll out or the other, but all the, you know the problem with the polling business is out of the blue, all these polls spring up. You have no basis to judge them. I would say pay most attention to, say, the Wall Street Journal, okay. uh, NBC poll. That's a pretty good poll. The ABC Washington Post poll is a good poll. CBS New York Times. Those okay. are the mainstream polls that probably I pay the most attention. What about the, these uh, this Reuter Daily poll? Reuters Daily you know, poll. I don't know going. enough about it to okay. give a judgment. Uh, there's certainly a lot of data. How good it is, time will tell. Yeah. Well, I certainly enjoyed the book, The Nixon Effect. Uh, have you caught much blowback from your colleagues on the left over this book? Most of them are somewhat chagrined that I wrote it, willing to concede Nixon was a little bit better a president than perhaps they acknowledged. But I think the book is a useful palliative to those on the left who only want to dissect Nixon's personality. I've dissected, I think, his record and suggest compellingly, I hope, in the Nixon effect that he was one of the transcendent presidents of the 20th century. Compellingly, you did. I really enjoyed it. I, thought, I learned a lot of things that I really didn't know. So it really put it in a different perspective. The book is called The Nixon Effect, How Richard Nixon's Presidency Fundamentally Changed American Politics. Doug Schoen, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it. Ben, thank you for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. And I just want to apologize for the sound quality on that interview. We weren't actually in the usual studio. Uh, Doug was catching a flight, and I wanted to sit down and talk with him. So we kind of had to improvise something in a kind of echoey meeting room off of the lobby of his hotel. So again, I'm sorry if there was any echo or background noise, and I know my voice came out a little weak in the interview. But uh, nonetheless, I hope you enjoyed it. And again, my thanks to Doug Schoen for coming on the podcast to talk about his new book, The Nixon Effect, How Richard Nixon's Presidency Fundamentally Changed American Politics. If you'd like to read it, I'll include an Amazon link in the show notes and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. You can follow Doug Schoen on Twitter at at Douglas E. Schoen. Now you spell that S-C-H-O-E-N. Or you can follow him at DougSchoen.com. Also, you can look for his regular column in Newsmax magazine. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a review. I'd also appreciate it if you went to our site and filled out a brief audience survey. And please recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on social media. Also, if you really want to help us out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or go to the website and click on the donate button. Follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And as always, I welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. On the next podcast, just in time for the Oscars, I'll talk with Yevgeny 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 Ah, to hell with it. The director of an incredible new film that's currently up for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. It's called Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. This guy and his crew were in the streets of Kiev with the demonstrators in Maidan Square in 2014 and 2015 for 93 days in the freezing cold getting beaten by police and shot at also that they could document start to finish the peaceful Maidan protest that became a revolution and drove Vladimir Putin's corrupt puppet president, Viktor Yanukovych, out of office and out of the country. Folks, this movie is truly epic in scope and as dramatic as any movie I have seen this year. It's nominated for an Oscar. It's available on Netflix. So watch it this weekend. You'll be glad you did. And then join me on Monday when I talk with the director, Yevgeny Avnivsky. I got it right on the next podcast. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.